pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer once wrote, There are a great many bogus Christs among us these days, and we must show them for what they are and then point to the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So now he's going to go in and list out what some of these bogus Christs are. For you know, there's the romantic Christ of the romance novelist, and there's the sentimental Christ of the half-converted cowboy, and there's the philosophical Christ of the academic egghead, and there's the cozy Christ of the poet, and there is the muscular Christ of the all-American halfback. But there is only one true Christ, and God has said that he is his son. What Tozer is telling us is that there are lots of false Christs and different versions of Jesus masquerading around as the real Jesus. So here's how that happens. Everybody, me, you included, we have this propensity to gravitate towards aspects of Jesus that fits our needs and our desires and our agenda. So you've got needs, you've got desires, you've got a, a way of looking at the world. And so what you do is when you look at Christ, you gravitate towards that thing that kind of aligns with what you're already doing. He fits your program and then you leave out everything else. We conveniently disregard these other aspects of Jesus that run counter to our needs and counter to our agenda and our desires. And so the result of that is a Jesus who is conformed into your image, who looks a lot like you, who has the same belief system as you, who has the same worldview. And so instead of uh, you being conformed to Jesus, Jesus is conformed to you. And when that happens, we, we lose the real Jesus as revealed in Scripture. Many people today claim Jesus as the leader of their political party. You'll see this in all parties. Everyone's going, yeah, Jesus affirms what we believe. Or, or Jesus will be the spokesperson for their social justice cause and their social justice campaign. Not that the campaigns are bad in and of themselves, but, but they'll, they'll, they'll claim Jesus as their spokesman. Or for some, Jesus has been uh, uh, conformed into their personal therapist and their Enneagram coach. I love the Enneagram. I'm an eight. But he's not my Enneagram coach. To some, he's, he's really a mascot. He's, he's been reduced to the mascot of modern evangelicalism. Or to some, he's their personal life coach and consultant. But friends, none of these provide a complete picture of Jesus, of the real Jesus. Maybe they, they get some aspects right, but if you only highlight one aspect and you deny all the other aspects, you don't have a full and complete picture of the real Jesus. But fortunately, God has given us a, uh, a, his written word so that we could know the real Jesus. We've been walking through the Gospel of John, and we've highlighted this verse because it, it gives, John gives his purpose statement for the whole book. John says, if you want to know why I wrote my gospel, why I wrote it, you can know it right here. Look at John 20, 31. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John says, I wrote my gospel so that anybody who reads it would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world. He is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. Jesus is God with us. He is also God who came for us to deliver us out of hopelessness and helplessness. 
John's gospel is often called the book of signs because John decided to highlight seven signs from the ministry of Jesus. Uh, John tells us that he did many signs, many, many wonders, but he highlights seven of them. And the whole point is when you look at these signs, they're pointing to something. When you look at a sign, the whole purpose of a sign is what? What it's pointing to. The sign's not the point, but what the sign points to is the point. And if you miss what the sign is pointing to, the sign becomes pointless, right? So our job today is to look at the signs and see what they're pointing to, and they reveal uh, who Jesus is. Now, we've already covered two of those signs, Jesus turning water into wine and Jesus uh, driving out the money changers in the uh, temple courts. And today, we're going to look at two more of his signs, uh, signs three and four, as Jesus heals a Roman official's son and a man with a physical disability. And as we work through these signs, we're going to see that Jesus is the son of God who revives And he's the son of God who restores. And then we'll all be confronted with a decision to make. Will we receive him as the son of God, the one in whom we're supposed to believe, or will we reject him? So let's start in verse 43 to see how it is that Jesus revives. John 4, 43. After two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So last week, we see Jesus leave the region of Judea and head north on his way to Galilee. And if you remember, he stops in Samaria to have this conversation with the woman at the well. He offers her living water, and she finds true satisfaction for his soul. Now John's telling us as he's leaving Samaria, he arrives in Galilee, back on Jewish soil in the region where Jesus grew up. It'd be like his his homecoming, coming back to his hometown. And John tells us that Jesus had often said uh, this, this little proverb, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. But then the next verse we read is that uh, Jesus was welcomed by the Galileans because they had seen the signs and wonders that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover. Now, we have to realize is this. um, There are three uh, pilgrim feasts every year that you have to go back to Jerusalem for. So no matter where you live, three times a year you gather back in Jerusalem. And earlier in John, we see Jesus in Jerusalem, and he performed many signs and wonders at this feast. And there were Galileans from his hometown who saw Jesus. They would have been like, oh, that, that, that was Joseph's son. We, we've seen him. We, we know him. And, and look at all the things that he's doing. And so when he arrives back in Galilee, they remember how just a few months earlier they had seen him do all these things. And of course, they, they welcome this miracle worker into their region. Now, on the surface, those statements seem at odds with each other, right? Jesus said a prophet has no honor in his hometown, and yet the Galileans welcome him. But John is doing something deliberate here. He's contrasting the way the Jews in Galilee superficially welcomed Jesus and the way the Samaritan faithfully received Jesus. He's doing something here. So in Samaria, the the last chapter we looked at, the people received and believed in Jesus based on his words, not because of signs. When Jesus is in Samaria, he doesn't perform any signs and wonders. He, He testifies about who he is, and the Samaritans hear his word, and they receive him. And now John is foreshadowing how the Galileans, though they'll initially welcome him, they're excited to have this miracle worker back among their midst, but their welcome is not receiving him. It's a welcome based on superficiality, based on this premise of what can you do for us? 
Entertain us with your signs and wonders. Or we have problems and needs, and we would love for you to solve them. As we progress through John's gospel, the Galileans will not seek Jesus as their savior, but as their problem solver. They seek Jesus for what he can do for him, what they can do for him, not for who he is. See, the signs and wonders are meant to point to Jesus as the gift to be received, not as an end and of themselves. Now look at verse 46. So he came again to Galilee, or to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now John sets up the scene for us, and he introduces us to a royal official in King Herod's army who lives in Capernaum. We also find out he's a desperate father whose son is at the point of death. So when this official hears that Jesus is in Cana, Capernaum and Cana are about 16 miles away, he does what any father would do. He makes that 16-mile trek. I'm guessing he bolted to get there to see if the rumors are true, to see if Jesus can heal his son. Verse 48. So Jesus said to this, Roman, to this official, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. Now we're confronted with the directness of Jesus. It's so direct to us, it's startling, right? If you, if you just read it on the surface, there's this desperate father. You can picture him in your mind, right? Coming, pleading. He, he's, he's probably out of breath. He's hustled to get there. And he finds Jesus and begs him, will you come and heal my son? And Jesus' first response to him is, you won't believe in me unless I perform a sign for you. It's startling. It's direct. It's confrontational. I wonder, how does that fit with your picture of who Jesus is? Now, if that's all he had said to the man, we'd be left to wonder, hey, what about the compassion of Jesus? But these two lines, this go and live, go and your son will live, and unless you see a sign you won't believe, both of them invite us into the tension of the real Jesus. See, as you interact with the real Jesus, there should be a tension because Jesus is going to confront something in your ideology. He has to. Jesus is both direct and empathetic here. He's both confrontational and compassionate. You don't get the real Jesus without both of those. Now, this official initially comes to Jesus as a means to an end. And it's a good end. To want his son to live is a good thing. But he is motivated by a sign, a desire to solve a problem. Now, let me say, as a father to five children, I don't blame the official in the slightest bit. I would, if any of my children were at the point of death, I'd beg and plead to anybody who would listen and offer help to heal my child. But at the same time, Jesus' directness is not contrary to his love. It's actually an expression of his love. Hang with me. I'll, I'll show you why. In fact, his rebuke isn't even just solely directed at the, at the uh, uh, official. See, Jesus uses the second person plural. My grammar nerds, where are you? 
Second person plural means it's you all, you guys. Where I'm from, it was said y'all. Unless y'all believe, unless you all believe, unless you guys believe, unless yous believe, whatever your dialect prefers, unless you people see signs and wonder, you will not believe. So he's talking to this official, but he's also talking about the region at large. And because it's been preserved for us in scripture, he's also talking to us. He's challenging us. Do we often keep Jesus at bay because we're seeking a sign? Tim Keller writes this. He's a pastor in Manhattan. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked both by radical truthfulness about who we are and radical, unconditional commitment to us. If you want to be truly loved, you need to be loved truly, truth and love. Jesus is direct with this official because he wants him to know, I know right now you think your greatest need is the healing of your son. But let me tell you something, you have a greater need that you know nothing about. There's an even greater need that your son has. Even though he's on the point of death, he has a greater need. You have a greater need. And friends, we have a greater need. If we're honest with ourselves, and this is a great place, you're in church today, to be honest with yourself. Our pursuit of Jesus is often driven by pragmatism instead of genuine love. We're Americans. We love things that work, right? People want God to do something for them before they're willing to trust and obey him. See, pragmatism focuses on immediate results and what works for us now. Now, does that mean that we can't ask God for help? Absolutely not. Don't go to that other end of the pendulum. Scripture is full of encouragement to call upon the Lord for our every single need. But what this passage is challenging us to do is to check our motives. When we ask God for that help, what is our motivation behind it? Are we saying, God, unless you give, I won't believe or receive? Or are we saying, God, I trust you as a good and loving father. So I'm, I'm bringing my needs and I trust you to fulfill them, meet them, say yes to them, say no to them, say wait on them, whatever it is, according to your good wisdom instead of mine. You see the difference between those two approaches? Do we only go to God when we need something? If so, he's actually not a God, he's a genie in a bottle. If he's just there to, you know, for you to rub the lamp and for the genie to come out and to make a request, don't forget the fact that the person who holds the lamp is the master of the genie. Even though the genie is great and all-powerful, the person who holds the lamp is the master, right? But in this scenario, when it comes to God, you are not the master. He is the master. A relationship with God pursues the Lord for him and trusts him to give you what is best. Pragmatism asks, what can religion do for me? Now, let me just ask you this. How would you like it? if people just pursued you for what you could give them, not for who you are. You'd feel like you're being used, right? Nobody wants to be used for what they can do for them, what they can give for them, and then when you stop performing, they're done with you, right? Nobody wants to be treated like that. I've never met the person who says, 
I can't wait to find somebody who will just use and abuse me for what I can give them. And when I'm done producing, will just throw me out. Nobody has ever said those things, right? But that's what happens when we come to God only for what we can get from him. So that pragmatism asks, what can religion do for me? Will it heal my grief? Then maybe I'll give God a try. Will it help me lose weight? Then maybe I'll give it a try. Will it help me with my bankruptcy? Will it help me with my depression, my job search? If it'll help me with the real problems of my life, then I'll give God a try. So if I pursue God, will I get married? Will I have kids? Will I get a house? Will I live happily ever after? If so, then I am in on religion. I'm in on God. Sounds great. That's asking what can religion do for me? And our pragmatism is fed by our culture of consumerism. We shop for goods and services that work for us. And when the merchant and provider stop providing those goods and services, what do we do? We move on, right? We feel no loyalty. I am loyal to Amazon right now, but if a better thing comes along, I'm in on that, right? We think if there's something better, we'll look elsewhere. But what happens to our relationship with God when we treat him like we're shopping for goods and services? See, we want God, if we're honest, to work more like Amazon Prime than the God of the Bible. We want access to unlimited goods at the best prices, free preferably, with no effort from me, shipped to my door in two days or less. David Wells wrote in his book, uh, No Place for Truth, writes this. We've turned uh, to a God that we can use rather than to a God we must obey. We've turned to a God who can fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. He is a God for us, for our satisfaction. And so we transform the God of mercy into a God who is at our mercy. We imagine that he is benign and that he will acquiesce as we toy with his reality and co-opt him into the promotion of our own ventures and careers. Now don't rush past the real words of the real Jesus this morning. Unless you see signs and wonders, will you not believe? Are you, friends, pursuing Jesus as a means to an end? Or is your pursuit of Jesus simply to get Jesus? Now, Jesus' response to the man is marked by radical truthfulness, compassionate love. And so, therefore, he avoids being sentimental and harsh. He gives him more than what he asked for. And he heals his son by the power of his word. And then he also, at the same time, confronts the man's greater need to believe in Jesus as his savior, not merely as his problem solver. See, when you come to Jesus, you always get more than what you asked for. Verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them, hey, uh, what was the hour he began to get better? And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him, and the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. So on the way back home, right, Jesus tells him, go, your son will live. He's heading back home, probably running just as fast as he came, right, excited to see what's going to happen, and his servants meet him halfway to let him know his son was recovering. And not blindly, but he investigates, hey, What time did he get better? Is this merely a coincidence? Or let me know the hour. And he finds out the fever left his son at the same hour Jesus told him his son would live. And in that moment, the man considered the life-giving power of Jesus' words to heal his son from afar. 
Remember, he said, come and heal my son. And Jesus said, go, your son will live. And he considered the truth-telling words of Jesus as well. He was, he was mulling over that idea of, am I pursuing him for what he can give me instead of who he is? And with the son's physical healing, spiritual healing came to this man's house as well. As he told the story to his servants, to his family, they too came to believe. What you see here is this shift. The uh, official move from pursuing Jesus for pragmatic reasons to believing in Jesus for something more. Jesus revives his son, and by grace through faith, he revives the man and his household. The word revive literally means to bring life again, to enliven, to bring life from death. You see, the, uh, his son wasn't the only person in his household who was at the brink of death. Apart from Christ, apart from his life-giving words, all of us are on the brink of death. And this sign points to the reality that not only does Jesus have power over disease and death, but when we believe in him, we have access to his life-giving words. We see him as the son of God who brings life by the power of his word and that he has come to conquer sin and death and bring life. Here's the beautiful thing about this passage. Jesus uh, revives and brings life to this man despite his mixed motives and imperfect pursuit. He doesn't say, hey, until you get it right, I'm not gonna work for you, right? He comes with mixed motives, but Jesus in his compassion doesn't wait till this man gets it right. He heals this man's son, not because the man came with perfect faith, but because Jesus is compassionate. He doesn't wait for us to get it figured out perfectly because none of us would get it right. None of us get it right. He doesn't wait to bring life from death until we figured out how to approach God perfectly. He saves us, revives us, extends his grace to us in our imperfection and while we're dead and our trespasses and sins. And he does so by confronting our false truths and also extending mercy. That's how Jesus revives. Now look at chapter five, verse one, to see that Jesus also restores so after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he's back in Jerusalem. And now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Okay, so we've just shifted to a new scene. Jesus is back into uh, Jerusalem for one of those pilgrim feasts that I mentioned earlier. Uh, John doesn't tell us which one, so it's not as important, but the point is it's a pilgrim feast, and that required all Jews, even Jesus, to go back to Jerusalem. Now, on the northeastern corner of Jerusalem's wall, we've got a picture here for you. You'll see the blue outline. You might not be able to see it as clearly. That blue outline is the wall, and on the outside of this wall, what's expanded there is this pool. It's on the northeastern corner of Jerusalem's wall, and there's a gate called the Sheep Gate. And from there, people could enter the city. It was also uh, the, the gate that the sheep used in temple sacrifice would have gone into the city. And near this gate was the Pool of Bethesda, which means House of Mercy. So you can see the pool um, right there. This is a big pool. It would be about five times the size of an, of, of an Olympic-sized pool, about 60,000 square feet. 
It's massive. And you have these colonnades all around. And inside of those colonnades, underneath the roof, um, you would have had uh, the blind and the lame, the paralyzed, the disabled. Other people would have, would have gathered there to, uh, uh, to get relief um, from the heat. They would have gathered there to, to ask for money. And most importantly, the, in, uh, the invalids would come to, uh, to this pool because it was believed that this pool possessed curative powers. Now, this belief is rooted in superstition, not in scripture, but here's how it went. The, the, the superstition was um, that every so often, an angel would dip down into the waters and stir them up. And when they would see that stirring, um, the first person to make it into that water would be cured of what ailed him or her. So, so you can imagine people thinking, man, if I can just get into that water, I will see. If I can just get into that water, I will walk. If I can just get into that water, my life can begin. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now John introduces us to a man who's been disabled for 38 years. If you consider the fact that the average life expectancy of a man living at this time was 40 years, this man has been disabled for nearly all, if not all, of his life. And Jesus sees him lying there. Friends, remember, when Jesus sees you, he sees more than just your physical needs. He sees all your needs. And with the eyes of compassion, he sees you and seeks to bring restoration. So he asks the man, do you want to be healed. Now on the surface, every time I've read this passage, I've thought, that question seems superfluous. It seems redundant. It seems almost insensitive. Like, do you want to be healed? The guy's like, um, I can't really move. I, I've been here for 38 years. That's a stupid question. Of course, this man wants to be healed. I mean, who in this room if you were disabled for 38 years, would not want to be healed. In fact, the whole reason he's at this pool is to get in the water at the right moment and be healed. But let's give Jesus the benefit of the doubt for a moment. He is the son of God after all. He doesn't speak flippantly. He doesn't speak carelessly. In fact, when you study the life of Christ, one thing should be uh, 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 so um, uh, uh, clear. He lived the most intentional life. No wasted time. No wasted words. Every word he ever spoke was intentional, full of purpose. So let's give Jesus the benefit of the doubt that he saw something in this man and that whatever he saw led Jesus to ask his question. We don't know, but perhaps the man had lost hope. And in his despair, he'd even lost the desire to get well. Have you ever met folks who've been struggling with something for so long that they just lose hope of ever getting well? better. Maybe his physical paralysis had spread to paralyze his will. Maybe his, uh, like his atrophied muscles, his heart had grown atrophied and he had lost all hope. And maybe Jesus's question serves to stir in this man hope again. See, the man was hoping that one day an angel would come and stir the waters. And now Jesus is stirring up in this man's soul, his will again, his hope again, his desire again, to find hope, to find it in him, to desire change. So the sick man answered him, verse seven, sir, I have no one. Just let the weight of those words fall on you. 
I have no one. No one to put me in the pool. And when the water is stirred up, while I'm going down, another one steps down before me. I have no one. I was talking with a, a, a woman who runs the community day center here in Waltham, and I was just asking her, you know, how does someone become homeless? Trying to understand the, the, the problem. And I always thought it was when someone ran out on their last dollar, you know, because then you have no money and then therefore you're homeless. And she said, it's not when you run out of your last dollar. It's when you run out of your last relationship. Just whew, the weight of that, right? This man says, I have no one. It's just the expression of despair, despondency, lack of hope. No one will wait with me here. We don't know when the waters get stirred and no one will just sit with me. So I have no one. And so when it does happen, there's always someone else who makes it into the pool before me. Every time the pool is stirred, someone beats me to the water. And that man's statement, he's saying, I've been trying to get into this water for years, and it's never worked. He admits that his way hasn't worked, his plan hasn't worked, that he's helpless and without resources and without relationships to do anything about it. Verse 8, Jesus said to the man, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took his bed and walked. Jesus finds this man in a state of helplessness and hopelessness and gives him more than he asked for. He sees this man who's been trusting in superstition instead of trusting in God. He sees this man in a state of despair and despondency, and he restores him. And as he speaks restoration into his body, he tells him to get up, pick his up, pick up his mat, and walk. I mean, just think about it from a, a biological, physical sense. Muscles that would have been atrophied, nearly non-existent, and in need of physical therapy, they're restored. He's able to stand and to walk, and to be, his muscles are ready to be used. Does, this, does Jesus wait until this man has fully understood who he is? No. This man doesn't even know his name. We found out later that people ask him who it was that healed him. And he's like, I don't know. Don't know his name. Does this man have faith in Jesus? Doesn't seem like it. He's helpless and hopeless. He didn't even ask Jesus to heal him. The other man came to Jesus and asked. This man's just sitting there. And Jesus gives him the gift of physical healing. Now this sign, like the others, reveals two things. Here's what it reveals. First, Jesus is the son of God. Here we see Jesus doing the same things God does. God the Father, his words have creative power. And when he speaks, creation responds. And Jesus heals this, man, his man, this man's body by the power of his word. And this man's body responds to his word and is restored, right? The muscles hear their creator and they do what he says, just like God. When God speaks, Things move, things happen. Creation is created out of nothing. Second, it points to the fact that Jesus gives life-giving restoration. This sign points us to the reality that Jesus is moved by compassion to meet our needs and bring life-giving restoration. Now, a question as a pastor I often get asked is, hey, pastor, I have prayed and I've asked God for things in my life. 
I, I have things in my life that need to be healed. I have financial needs that need to be covered. Or you can fill in the blank. And my guess is if you're here today, you have some spiritual inclination and you might have had the courage of faith to ask God for something, right? And you've wondered, why hasn't God looked on me with compassion to meet that need today? And I think that is a great question. Here's what, here's what the Bible teaches. First of all, we need to understand that, the, uh, that during the days of Jesus' ministry, most of his days were ordinary, right? Most of his days were, were filled with doing the same things you and I do, getting up, eating, sleeping, working, interacting with people. Now, we hear about a lot of these signs and wonders because John is doing something. He's wanting to, to point us to something. But most people that Jesus came into contact with didn't experience these miraculous healings. They came to him. They had needs that, that went unmet in that moment. And there's certainly not one time in the Gospels when Jesus makes money bags appear, right? That never happens. But these signs and miracles are doing something. They're meant to validate the uniqueness of Jesus and to point to him as the son of God and that he has the ability to bring life and restoration in a world that is stained with sin and broken by the fall. These miraculous signs show us that God is in-breaking. He's, he's, he's breaking in his grace into a world that's broken by the fall to, to show that God is making good on his promise to bring restoration and renewal to his creation. When you see these miracles, you should think foretaste, appetizer, or if you're really fancy, an amuse-bouche. You ever gone to a really fancy restaurant and before you've ordered anything, they bring you a little bite? Anybody? People, you need to get out more, okay? Okay, you haven't even ordered something. And what the chef does is he brings you a taste. He's saying, I have a meal planned for you that you know nothing about. And in this bite, I am giving you a foretaste of the seasonings I'm gonna use, of some of the ingredients I'm gonna use. It might be one of the best bites you've ever had in your life. That's what these miracles are doing. It's a foretaste of the meal to come. He's saying, when you look at this, your mind should start going, wait a minute, you're saying there's coming a day when our bodies will work without ailments? You're saying there's coming a day when, uh, when it feels like I'm paralyzed, I'll be able to walk? You're saying there's coming a day when I'll never feel the pang of hunger, when I'll never feel the pang of need? And Jesus in these miracles is saying, yes, that day is coming. And these miracles are to give you a foretaste to go. He will make good on his promises. They're meant to stir up faith in us, to give us hope for the coming today when God will make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. That's why at Christmas we sing joy to the world because he will make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So practically, can you ask God for healing today? Can you ask God for uh, redemption today? Can you ask God for financial covering today? Can you ask God for fill in the blank today? Hear me, church. Yes, you can. And hear me, church. Yes, you should. Ask God for your needs. He is a good and loving father, and we are welcomed into his presence to ask. You can ask God for anything. And God is certainly able to heal. He is certainly able to to fill in the blank, but we are not guaranteed those things today. He is not obligated to give you those things today. I tell my kids no 
all day long. And it makes me a good and loving father. Sometimes what my kids ask for are not the things they need. And God is a good and loving father. There are times when he will, in his love, send you down a road, hear me, that has suffering on it. That not only, it's not that he um, is going, man, they're suffering down that road and if I could do something about it, I would. It's like, I want you to go down this road because there are things you're going to learn on that road you couldn't learn otherwise and you would never willingly go down that road on your own. There's something I want to do in you that could never be done without it. Friends, God is not interested in what you are doing as much as who you're becoming. And his job as a father is to shape and mold and form you. And he will send you down roads you would never otherwise go down to do a work in you that, you could, that could, another, uh, could not be done otherwise. And it is for your good. It's why often when you're done with that road and you look back on it, you go, that was one of the hardest years of my life. I would never have chosen it. And if you asked me to go down that road again today, I would say, please no. However, there are things that mark who I am today that make me, hear me, thankful for that road. I am who I am today because of that road. We're not promised that healing today, but there is coming a day when all the effects of sin will be removed, both physical, spiritual. On that day when sin is removed and every single effect of the curse is undone. I love how J.R. Tolkien says it in The Lord of the Rings. There's coming a day when all sad things are untrue. It'll be like they never existed. At the same time, let's not miss the application for us today. Until that day, the bride of Christ, the church, is called to be agents of compassion and restoration. Jerry Bridges once wrote, Jesus' acts of healing then had a twofold purpose. Clearly, they were needed as an authentication of his divine sonship. But in the process, Jesus wanted to respond to true human needs, and so we should not overlook the application to us. While the spiritual needs of a people are paramount, we must not ignore their physical needs. I think one of the reasons why Jesus allows physical needs to go unmet is so that the church, as his representation, his hands and feet, can go be among the people and fill physical needs. So as we interact with friends and family, as you interact with your neighbors and networks, let's share the good news of the gospel. Yes, in word, we actually have to tell people about Jesus, but let's also do so in deed. We should not separate those two things. Jesus shared the gospel in word and in deed. Let's look at people holistically, just like Jesus did. And let's see how we can meet physical and spiritual needs because the real Jesus revives and restores. So as we close, it's time to decide. Will we receive him or will we reject him? Look at verse nine. Now that day, the day that the man was healed at the pool was the Sabbath. That's like John's way, like the music would be playing, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. See, John, when he was setting the scene at the beginning of the chapter, he left out that detail as a good storyteller so that when he brings it in now, we'd feel the weight of it. Oh, oh, there's a problem. The Jews see the man who's been healed and he's carrying around this bed mat, okay? 
and they accuse him of breaking the law. Now, Jewish tradition at that time said it was against the Sabbath to carry anything from one place to the next. So you can't move on Sundays, okay? Or that day would be Saturday. You can't move on Saturdays. And this guy's just carrying a little, like, yoga mat, basically, is what it is. And they had taken what was supposed to be a gift, the gift of rest, and they made it a burden. They made it much more restrictive. See, if you read through the Old Testament, you're not going to find where's that law about carrying a mat. It's not in there. This was Jewish tradition, adding laws on top of laws. Carrying anything from one place to another was considered work, and it was strictly prohibited on the Sabbath. So uh, so this man answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, who is the man who said that to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, and Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So under attack and an accusation, the man deflects, right? He says, well, I'm just doing what that guy told me. The guy who healed me, he told me to do this. So really, I'm, I'm out. He blame shifts, throws Jesus under the bus, and says, I don't even know the guy's name, right? He's just completely like distancing himself from Jesus. Now, verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So later, Jesus finds the man in the temple courts, and now he begins to address his spiritual needs. You notice these two stories have similarities. To the man who had his son healed, he addressed physical and spiritual needs. Now Jesus is doing the same with him. He tells him, sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. So what's going on with that statement? Jesus seeks out this man to bring attention to his spiritual disability. He says, I know you know you had physical disabilities, but let me tell you this. You also have a spiritual disability. He says, your body has been healed, but there's a greater disease called sin that will lead to something far worse than a physical disability. He's saying sin is a terminal illness that is ultimately life-threatening. So when Jesus brings restoration to you, he brings both physical and spiritual restoration. He's met this man's physical need, and now he's addressing this man's spiritual need. And this is another example of Jesus speaking truth in love. So he's really clear to this man. He says, if you continue living a life of sin, you will experience judgment for that sin. Now, how did he respond to Jesus? Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So as Jesus starts to uh, 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 stir around in the man's soul, as he, as he begins to point out his imperfections and his flaws, the man goes out and rats on Jesus. He goes and says, hey, I got the name of that guy. Now, we don't know the rest of his story. We don't know if later on he took Jesus' words to heart. But instead of staying in the temple courts and contemplating his sinfulness and his need for a savior, contemplating what could it mean when Jesus said, sin no more, he goes and finds the people who were accusing him, who were violating, uh, uh, violating the Sabbath, so that he could get himself off the hook. He basically becomes a CI for the Jews and focuses the inv- investigation on Jesus. Like, think about it. These people are so focused on their traditions that they've not even looked at the miracle that's been performed in their midst, right? They're going, wait a minute, wait, whoa, whoa. Aren't you the guy who's been disabled for 38 years? No one's even asking that question. They just wanna know, where's the guy who told you to get up and walk again? This man welcomed the healing from Jesus, 
but he doesn't appear to have received the warning about his sin. And to not receive him is to reject him. See, when it comes to Jesus, there's no neutral option. There's no third way. There's not this place of indecision. Your indecision is a rejection of Jesus. So how does this scene end? Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus hears these accusations, and he, and he gives an explanation to them that is more offensive to them than the healing on the Sabbath. Here's what he does. First, he calls God his father which would have communicated a level of intimacy and closeness of relationship that would have been unheard of at this time. Like they would have thought as a whole, as a nation, God is our father. But you did not see Jews walking around calling God their father. Like we begin prayer sometimes, father, my father in heaven, God the father, that would never have been on the mouths of a Jew at this time. It communicates a level of intimacy that would have been shocking to them. And then he says, Don't you know, God is at work even on the Sabbath. Now, on this point, the Jews would have agreed with him. They would have known, well, listen, in one sense, God never stops working, right? Creation doesn't just drive on its own. He has to sustain creation. He is is the one involved in all the details. Because, friends, our world doesn't work and exist without the constant involvement and oversight of God. But then Jesus connects those dots. He says, listen, God is my father. You got that? God is working, and so it's okay for me to work as well because I'm his son. So if it's, if it's good for the father to work on the Sabbath, I'm his son. I'm his boy. I can work too. And they know the dots that he is connecting. Jesus claims to be able to work as God does because he is God's son, and in fact, they're at work together. This healing is, in fact, God the Father working through God the Son to bring restoration to his man. And the Jews pick up on everything he's saying, and because of that, they seek to kill him. They said he is making himself equal with God. And if it's not true, if he's not really equal with God, then it's blasphemous, and blasphemy deserves death. And John tells us it was from this moment on they began to plot the death of Christ. You see how that initial welcome of Jesus has now turned into a rejection of Jesus? So our hope this morning was to look at John's gospel to see the real Jesus and how real people really responded to him. The first man came to Jesus to heal his son. He came with mixed motives, driven by desperation. Jesus called him out on his imperfect imperfect pursuit, and at the same time, he heals his son, and this man receives him. The second man was approached by Jesus. He admitted his helplessness and his hopelessness. Jesus healed the man, and at the first sign of pressure, what happens? The man rejects Christ. He was indifferent to him. And now this third group, this group of Jews, have outright rejected him, and their desire is to kill him. They value their traditions. They value their program. They value their power more than Jesus. See, they wanted a Savior made in their image, not in the image of the invisible God who has become flesh. So as we close, have you considered if the Jesus you believe in is the real Jesus or merely a Jesus of your own creation? Is he a Jesus of your own imagination? The Puritan John Owen warned the people of his day, 
If you are satisfied with an imaginary Christ, you must be satisfied with an imaginary salvation. If you have an imaginary Jesus, you will get an imaginary salvation. Friends, don't settle for a Jesus of your own imagination. Everyone here needs a real salvation, which means we need the real Jesus as given to us in the scriptures. As we look to the real Jesus, will you welcome him as one who gives you things as a means to your ends, or will you receive him simply for who he is and then find in relationship with him, he is the one who revives and restores you. Let's pray.